What is going on? It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieved stardom. On this episode, we had an incredible conversation with Modest Yahoo over Zoom video. It was amazing speaking to Modest Yahoo. He really takes us on a deep dive through his entire discography starting with where he was born and raised, talks a little bit about the project he had prior to Modest Yahoo. We get into Shake Off the Dust, Arise. We also talk a lot about the Live from Stubbs, the first uh, Live from Stubbs with King Without a Crown and the success of the song and then going into youth and re-recording the song and having radio stations still play the, the live version. Uh, we talk about Light and obviously the major success of One Day, and he tells us some really cool facts about the song that not a lot of people know. But he walks us through the entire discography, Light, Sparkseeker, Akeda, Undercurrent, his self-titled album, and we also talk quite a bit about the brand new EP that Modest Yahoo has, which is called Hold the Fire and the huge tour he's doing to support it. You can watch the interview. I highly suggest you watch it. It's very entertaining. Uh, it's up now on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It would be amazing if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it would be amazing if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Modest Yahoo. Amazing. I'm Adam. Nice to meet you. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to chat with you. Nice. Thanks, Adam, for having me on. Of course. Um, crazy. My, I have an older son who's 15 now and a younger one that's seven. And the older one's first concert was a Modest Yahoo show in San Diego. Awesome. That's awesome. At yeah. Belly Uppers? Was it, where was it? It was actually at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Oh, I sick. believe it's called the San Diego Fair. Now it was like in 2014. Yeah, Del Mar. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so very cool. Yeah, I'm just grabbing a spoon real quick. All sense. good. Yeah, take your time. All right, cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, um, this is a, a podcast about you and your journey in music, and I want to talk to you, obviously, about the the EP coming out which I had a chance to hear and is so good. I, I oh, really, really you. like it. Yeah. Uh, my favorite song on the EP you haven't released yet. So, um, okay, cool. Which one lifeline or uh, love supply, love supply. That song mm. is so, I mean the, the whole, the, the whole record is amazing, but that one just, I, I don't know. I just love it. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I always start off with um, born and raised. Uh, I, I believe you were born in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Pennsylvania. We uh, we moved to Berkeley, California when I was like six months old and then oh, wow. to uh, Westchester, New York uh, when I was about four or five. Okay, so you, yeah, super young when you were so in So I grew in, up in, in Berkeley. Like, what, I, yeah, I pretty much grew up in White Plains, New York. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I, I'm from San Diego. Originally, I live in Nashville now, but uh, I spent about five years in uh, the Bay Area uh, doing radio. I used to do terrestrial radio. That's where I kind of got really into to you and we used to play uh, the live um version yeah. of king without a crown which was incredible yeah. and you did uh this oyster fest thing in san diego we did a broadcast for me. 
I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah San Diego radio, radio was always very, very cool to me. You know, that was probably like San Diego and L.A. were where I got my start, really. You know, That's amazing. Yeah. So how did you then, uh, you know, kind of originally get into music? Come from a musical um, creative house a little? Yeah, I'd say my parents are like music lovers, not musicians. Okay. But uh, but just I'm as a kid, I remember just tons of music being on all the time, like really good music. And I remember feeling, um, you know, just feeling good whenever there was music on, you know. So in the 80s, so my mom's sort of a deadhead. So there was a lot of Grateful Dead, Neil Young, like that kind of era of music. But then, you know, singer-songwriter stuff like Tracy Chapman and Ricky Lee Jones and Paul Simon Graceland, James Taylor, like was what was being played around the house. And then um, then I guess as a, at a young age, I just like, I guess the first like, melody i remember like ever like like i remember hearing like melodies on commercials or in movies and stuff and being like feeling some some like attraction to it and the one the first one i remember is you know that classic um line from uh beverly hills cop i remember being like a little kid and hearing that being like whoa um and then I got to see the Grateful Dead perform a couple times before Jerry Garcia passed away and oh, uh, wow. fell in love with Bob Marley and then eventually more some more reggae artists beyond Bob Marley. But that was really like the the key for me. And then went to a fish concert when I was 16 and that kind of like blew my mind. So I'd say like when I was around 16, 17 is when I knew that like I wanted to do music, but I didn't know exactly what or how because i didn't really play any instruments so i had a drum set my dad had some drums so I, I set that up in the house with a microphone through a pa with like delay and reverb and stuff and then i would just like play the drums and like chant and then eventually i started getting like instrumental hip-hop tapes and writing and then i would just like practice like my flow into the microphone and uh that's how i kind of got into the hip-hop reggae kind of stuff you know wow um, I did read that you, you know, you mentioned fish. You became kind of a one of the the fish fans. Did you like follow them around and stuff, or was yeah, it? yeah? I, I, I officially dropped out of high school after my first day of my senior year and got in a Volkswagen <laughs> bus with a friend who had one and drove up to Burlington, Vermont, to wait for tour to start, and then then jumped on the fall tour. Wow! So you just followed him around through that whole tour? Yeah, just following him around, just you know, no. Uh, no credit cards or anything like that from the parents, you know, just like a bag of quarters and uh, selling like whatever I could sell on the lot and kind of like, kind of like find a crew of people like, you know, young kids like yourself. And then you guys kind of go to the lot and everyone sort of does something different. And at the end of the night, you pool your money and maybe you get a hotel room or maybe you just get gas to the next show or whatever it is. That's awesome. The next one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, How do you like, was that experience i mean i'm i've just have always been so fascinated with that and the deadheads and stuff where it comes to like getting into the show where was it like they knew they had this cult following of people and they would just kind of like let the doors open to anyone or did you have to find a ticket every shot every show on the you whole had tour? To find, yeah you had to find a ticket and um at that time it wasn't like i hadn't i hadn't done mail order or like bought tickets prior or anything like that so every day was like trying to find a way into the show and i was success <laughs> i was successful I was successful. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so after it's, kind of doing that tour, was that when you're like, wow, this is kind of what I want to do? Like, this is what I yeah, want I mean, to do. Yeah. 
I think I, I mean I had one experience where I had I had heard uh, a guy in the park singing the Rasta Man chant like a, a hippie like you know white kid from Georgia you know, with dreadlocks and the way he like belted that song I was just like it like sort of struck a chord in me and I felt like I could I could do it and um, I don't think I even like practice it that much but I did it in front of somebody one time and they they kind of like their jaw dropped and they were just like like that's insane and halloween fish did talking heads that year at the omni in atlanta and um i kind of had had like a bad trip and i i lost my shoes in there and like i come out like barefoot and like distressed and i like uh went and i got my drum and i had like a, a djembe or whatever and I go into this parking lot and there's like another guy playing and then me and him start jamming and he knows me. He, he had like, he had heard me sing this Rastaman chant before on tours, like in the parking lot or something. Mm-hmm. So he goes like, sing it, you know, and I start singing it. And like this drum circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger until there's like, uh, basically, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people. Like he turns into this eruption of, of like energy and uh hippies dancing and banging on on the walls with sticks and it's just like insane and i think i like and during that trip i had a moment where i was like i don't know that just like everybody can do that and i think that might be the thing that i can do you know i can sing and my voice is is like going to touch people but and i and i kind of have a vision for this music of what kind of music i want to make so but um i think i have this ability to like pull people together in that way and um mm-hmm. and so i think from that moment yeah i'd say is when i kind of knew that i wanted to do that yeah you definitely have like this i mean seeing you live like this energy that you bring with you that kind of pulls everybody together it's really yeah. a, an incredible thing to watch with those shows, I mean, was that kind of how you got your start? Like, was it more like an organic thing like that? Like, you just kind of play out around people and then built kind of a name for yourself there? Or did you start in, like, trying to play clubs or? Well, what happened then is, like, uh, kind of like I I went home from, from um, Fish Tour. I went to rehab upstate New York. Then I went back to high, tried to go back to high school. And then I went out on like a wilderness therapeutic program. I ended up in Oregon in like a halfway house kind of for a year mm-hmm. and performing in like open mic nights in like Bend. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'll get Sorry, man. What the fuck? What the fuck? All right. Is that okay? If I oh, yeah. uh, stop it. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Um, Can I smoke weed on the podcast as well? Do whatever you'd like, man. This is all uh, you and and about you and your journey, man. I don't, I don't have any relations whatsoever. (laughs) So then I ended up staying in Bend, Oregon, and starting my first band. Not as modest Yahoo, but the first band that I was in, first rendition of it, and um, playing some gigs and I, I ended up moving back to New York, going to school at the new school. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was looking when I was in college, I, I was always fascinated by that place. I wanted to go yeah. there, like film and stuff. Yeah. It's a really cool place. I ended up meeting um, a lot of the musicians that I play with today. And um, I'm still friends with and tour with and travel and stuff. So, uh, but while I was there, 
I would say, I think it was like maybe my second year there is when I started becoming religious. Mm. I wasn't from like a religious family, so uh, Jewish, but not Orthodox or Hasidic. So that's when I started that exploration and it ended me up in, in Crown Heights studying uh, Torah, you know, in a yeshiva for a couple of years. And during that time, I didn't even really listen to music. I, I, I eventually... Um, I eventually went to Philadelphia and recorded a few demos, one of which was King Without a Crown. Oh, and, wow, really? Yeah, and Closed My Eyes and Got No Water, those three songs. So I recorded those while I was still in Yeshiva, but eventually um, my kind of Modest Yahoo story started, kind of starts there. So that, that other stuff is kind of all pre, you know, before. before yeah, before you started Modest Yahoo, or before, yeah, before yeah. Modest Yahoo. And what, yeah. were those songs that you, like King Without a Crown, were those songs that you had written uh, for that project? Or was this just, you're kind of starting over? No, I, I I had become like this other person. You know I mean? It, it was it. like gone through this transformation and was coming out the other side. And, um, and so there were some guys I knew from NYU Music Business School that started a record label, got a grant to promote Jewish music. And they kind of reached out, found me, reached out to me in Yeshiva and asked me to uh, to sign a, a deal with them, with them as my label. And this, they didn't have distribution or anything, but they started booking me shows in New York, opening up for people, different things, and got me some great opportunities and some great press. And, um, and then it kind of took off from there. So... <laughs> Yeah. Is that the 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 record that you put out on on J Dub Records that it, eventually what got picked up through Epic or something like that <laughs> or you got moved over? Or... Yeah, that first record I should have made while I was still in Yeshiva at the end, and um, it's called Shake Off the Dust to Rise. Uh -huh. And then um, I got signed through that record, but they wanted right away to put out a live album. So oh, I haven't seen my show before. Yeah, yeah that's that's interesting because to want to go right into doing a a live record instead of having you know a bunch of albums out with songs that people knew and then straight into like oh let's just put a live version out of this show or or whatever you go and do the the live <laughs> stubs album yeah exactly that wow. was kind of cool i mean it was kind of genius in a sense one sec so closing this over here yeah go ahead. it was it was kind of smart uh the guy who was the a and r of that project who had come and seen me and he had seen me perform, I think that morning on Carson Daly's show, um, whatever show Carson Daly had at the time, it wasn't TRL. It was after that. And then he saw me like, like, you know, later that day perform at a yeshiva, like where I was doing something like for the kids, like on Rosh Chodesh at like eight in the morning or something like that. And he he like he saw the vibe and the live presence and right away was like we we need to capture that on um on an album you know so it worked. and why did you like why did you decide on uh, a Stubbs and having a show in in Austin like was that a place that you had been quite a bit before no, and had no, a fan no. base there or no again that was all this A and R had just this A and R was like a top guy at Epic and then just quit. Like oh, when wow. he was like a when he was like a president. Sorry about that, man. Let me put no, my no. phone uh, on focus mode. Should have done that from the beginning. <laughs> Don't worry, dude. Okay, okay. The very laid back podcast. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs>
Okay. So um, that A&R had, had a, you know, VP level job at Epic and um, was responsible for some really cool projects and had like, you know, Missy Elliott and when the Allman Brothers came back together and just, just all types of different stuff. And he, he had just like quit, started his own indie label with another guy and they had signed Los Lonely Boys. Oh, wow. Okay. Who was out of Austin, Texas. And they had like huge success and then made a deal with Epic where Epic could upstream whatever artists came through them. And I was the next artist to come through. So they were like, all right, you know, the A&R was like, we don't want to put Modest Yahoo like at like the JCC and like, you know, wherever, like we want him in like a real music place. It was pretty brilliant. And even like the marketing on it, you know, you see like I'm in the Borsalino Hasidic, but it has, it almost looks like a cowboy hat. Like there's yeah. some kind of cool. And um, so, so that, that's where we went, you know, we went to Austin. I was on tour and we recorded the show, just one show there um, on, you know, one of the early tours. Wow. So that, yeah, that's just all one, one take, one show. And the yeah, we success did, we, of that was insane. Yeah, we did to be, you know, a hundred percent truthful. We did replay like three or four songs at the end of the set so that we had like two options to choose from for like King Without a Crown and stuff. But um, yeah, it was just like a night on tour. Yeah, it was oh just like gosh. a night. We didn't even know it was like there was a truck there and we had in-ears and we're, there was all these people and people mixing it. And we we're just like, you know, wow. I remember that. I remember that day. That's so cool. That's so wild, especially since it was a, a place like, you know, Austin, Texas, where you wouldn't really imagine like, you know, if you hadn't really been there to, to just be like, oh, this thing's happening and then fill the room and then capture this moment that has been so inspirational to so many people and the the amount of records that has sold and then to have a live version become like the radio single. I mean, when I worked at 91X in San Diego, we were playing the live version of King Without a Crown. Like, yeah. that's just something that is so unheard of. It was magical. I'm, I remember the the radio guy who's kind of a famous guy in the industry named Danny Bush. A lot of people know. You probably know him if you weren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember him, um, you know, his strategy was like he would play the record for people uh, and they would love it, you know. And then he would say like, all right, now here's who's singing it and show them a picture. You know, people would be like, how the fuck is this? And then and then it's and then it's also a live song. You know, it's a live song. And uh, so the success of that record was like, you know, kind of kind of miraculous. So just it was just different. You know, it was it was its own thing. A lot of people stood. A lot of people stood behind it like yourself, like a lot of radio uh, support for that record, like the most, you know, obviously that I ever had. So it was like uh just people just loved, fell in love with the record. They were just like, I want to play it. I want to play this. You know, it's cool. Yeah. There's something so magical about what you captured in that live version of the song. That's like, wow. I mean, we were playing it. They still play it to this day. I mean, it's so it's lived so on so long in this cool way. Like I can't think of another real live version, maybe like a cheap, like cheap trick or something that has like a live version of a song that kind of became yeah. like a big, you know, so big as the singer. yeah and even like uh probably the biggest mistake the record company made was to re-record that song for the record you know and then release it you know when they released um 
like the recorded version of King Without a Crown. I think Stubbs was selling like 30,000 albums a week. Uh huh. You know, so it's like yeah. everyone loved the live one, you know, leave it alone, you know, <laughs> right. and, um, leave it alone, you know. And then I think when they made a recorded version, every a lot of radio promoters and stuff were like, well, you know, the magic is on the live one. And now we see what the label is doing. They're trying to make it something else, which wasn't necessarily the case. We had Bill Laswell producing and the the recorded version is sick, is sick as fuck. I love it. But oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was weird to release. It's weird to release a recorded version on top of a live version when the live version is doing so well that the record label can't even believe that it's doing that well. Like it can't be, you know, this song can't go top 40. Right. But it, but it was starting to, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah, no. And if you think about records, then nowadays you can make a record on your computer. Right. I mean, sure. the amount of money people were putting into producers and and recording albums at the time and to have I'm sure it was way cheaper to just do the live show at Stubbs and have it. And then to have that thing do so well, it's like, whoa, like not only was it not this big production in months upon end that you're putting really into just the track? It cost next to nothing to make. If they yeah, just left I mean. it like, at that from a <laughs> yeah. business model, from just a business standpoint. That's crazy. You know, if they had left it at that, you know how, <laughs> how wealthy we would all be. <laughs> uh, I read that like going into light, it was kind of, you know, it was definitely a change for you as far as like sonically, right? A bit. Going into that next album after yeah youth. yeah after youth, uh yeah that was sort of like it was this old school manager with this old school perspective that was like okay you just kind of like exploded you know you came out on the scene you did your thing now go away mm -hmm. that used to be the strategy <laughs> oh really? it wasn't like having to try to <laughs> get go. another hit and like no try to move, yeah. no really put out another song put out another release that's the biggest shift I think from from those days to these days in the music industry. I mean, it's a big one that not a lot of people talk about because it's not the obvious one, but um, the idea that you kind of step back and then come back in a few years. And that mm -hmm. was, that was like, uh, like the stupidest fucking thing in the world, you know, because at that, even at that point, it was like, people are already moving on quick. So I took a lot of time to make that record. You know, I went made, made the record with David Kahn, who was meticulous. You sit in a basement with him and he like, you know, adds layers and layers and layers and changes. And, and um, it took us, I think eight months to make that record, something like that. Wow. And um, I started the record out by like, Epic got me a room at the pencil factory in Greenpoint. I don't know if you know, it was like an old pencil factory that became a bunch of lofts. No, I ended amazing, up meeting. Though. Yeah, I ended up meeting like a bunch of artists like Adam Deitch and Eric Krasnow, people that Stu Brooks that I play with over the years. Everyone kind of had a room in there, and it was before that area was really built up. It was kind of on its way, just north of Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so Epic got me a writing room there, and I would go there. People would come, you know, different artists or producers, and hang out for a few days, and we record record stuff, and then we I would take all that to david literally on my bicycle i would like ride my bike from there over the bridge to david's studio in like uh meatpacking district and um sit with him and then we would kind of like try to put it all together into songs and um it was just like a long really like long process you know a lot of detail and not how i like like to make records uh now you know right so 
And then, yeah, so that was like quite a few years before that. And also like on the writing tip, I was on a kind of a new place too. You know, it was like my philosophical, uh, what I was learning and I was learning a lot at the time was kind of like branch starting to branch out into new worlds. So, so that was going on as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with the, I mean, going into that album a couple of years later, were you, worried or was it nothing you even th thought about as far as like were people going to stay on board or you know continue well, at that forward? point yeah like are you worried so that about was like this? already were like those the difference in those years between like 2005 6 to 2010 is like there's those that's like a key moment in music industry those five years probably like there's a trans huge transition there so by the time we finished light and handed it in which was essentially the story of the seven beggars by Rabbi Nachman, who's like this Breslov Hasidic uh, rabbi who stopped teaching Torah and started telling stories. And I had started studying these stories with this rabbi and we were like dissecting them. And the whole album had this whole, like basically the form of the seven beggars. Epic had gone through changes. They had hired this woman who was uh, like a songwriter, essentially had had like big hits and she listened to the album, you know, felt it had been overproduced and that there wasn't any hits on the album. And so asked me if I would go back in with another producer to write um, some hits that they could like add to the album and they would take off a few songs from the album. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of artists would have been like, fuck you, you know? Yeah. No yeah. But I was like, um, like, all right, like, I've always been kind of like, try, I'll try something, you know, if it, if it had turned out that I didn't like those songs, you know, I probably would have fought with them about what songs should be on the album, but I was open to like the session, you know? So did you Ever. end up then recording some, re-recording some of the songs for the album at all and well, keep any of those or no? Yeah. I had been on tour with an artist named Kanon who had this song that I was listening to every night called Waving Flag. It was like, when I get older, I will be stronger. They'll call me freedom, just like oh. a waving flag. Oh, I know that I song, yeah. Flag, right? So that song eventually was used like a year, couple years later for the World Cup and it became a big uh -huh. song. When he was playing it on tour, it wasn't even like the label didn't even know that that was a hit. I remember like speaking to one of the A&Rs being like, you know this massive song. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, we'll see, you know. And like, uh, he recorded it played me a version of it at some point on tour so when i when amanda amanda ghost that the head of epic at that time said will you go record another song i said yeah can you find out who produced uh waving flag by this artist named Kanon, this this canadian artist she goes it happens to be that that um the a and r that i'm bringing in to be your a and r now because you know when the president comes in they bring their own people you know so she a lot of people got fired she brought her people in the new a&r from modest yahoo is the manager of this group called the schmeezingtons this production group and the schmeezingtons produced that song for Kano, and he manages them a week later i was on a plane and i was recording one day with the schmeezingtons so who's wow. the schmeezingtons the schmeezingtons is three guys like a kid from teaneck who's like the engineer Another producer who you probably don't know who it is. And then another producer who, who was trying to get a record deal at the time, but couldn't get a record deal. And for years had been like struggling, trying to get a record deal, was writing for other artists and stuff. So who do you think that artist is, that producer was? 
Do you know the story? I don't. I, I'm, I'm excited. A lot of people don't. So I've started gotten, getting better at like telling it or like just drawing it out. Okay. No, I, I want to hear it. I Bruno, fu- Bruno fucking Mars. Oh, man. Okay. That so is wild. Back. I was I wondering because he had a writing life. credit on that song, I believe, from what I, I was I, reading it. I, I just totally be, lost my mind. Mo- I was. Yeah. I, I do come remember back from that. that from L.A. from that trip with with one day. And, you know, that became for me, probably probably the biggest song of my career. Oh, yeah. And then speaking of, sure. you know, having the song for the World Cup, yours was going to be at the Olympics, right? It was. It was yeah, like a, you, yeah, it was used. It was used by NBC for this, the NBC spot for the Olympics. Yeah, two thousand ten. So, um, yeah. That is wild. I mean, obviously, uh, the right move going with those producers. And it's crazy, the whole, you know, concept of like, oh, I really like this song. Who produced it? And then you do that with One Day and it's this massive song also syncing with similar, you know. Yeah, it's it's what Bruno does. You know, I went to Bruno Mars and I was like, I want my waving flag. I want my no woman, no cry. He's really good at like knowing like different genres and how to like capture the like essence of what you know that song is he can re- he can recreate it's crazy i wonder if yeah. that kind of broke him into the industry because of the success of that song i don't think so oh. i don't think the song blew up yet or I don't, I don't think even a lot of people didn't know about that i think it, i think it, he got his record deal he's like a he was he was gonna get that deal you know okay and then once he did he was so talented you know on so many levels like He's not just an artist or a singer. He's like producer, or writer, no businessman, like knew the, you know, smart dude, like hustler. So all those things combined, you know, he was like going to the top when he got his shot. There was no question. you know. Yeah. 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 Wow. And then you ended up doing another uh, Stubbs record as well, right? Like, I did. Yeah, yeah. I did a, I did a lot of Stubbs too. This time we did it outside and I did that. At that point I had changed up my sound. I had gone with another band called the Dub Trio from williamsburg and um they were kind of like not um the guys from my original band were from the new school i'd gone to school with them and these guys were a band that i really admired who had like they played instrumental dub essentially and they also kind of were leaning towards like rock with dub elements and uh, it was all instrumental and i would write i found myself writing lyrics to their music because it was instrumental and it was like so dope Mm-hmm. And eventually we became kind of close, me and the bass player. And he's like one of my best friends now. Uh, but at the time, uh, we became close. We did some songs together. Uh, we did the uh, uh, Save Darfur album. Uh, we did a John Lennon song, Watching the Wheels, and they were the band. And we did a couple of things together. And then we just, we did a show at like the Bell House or something in Brooklyn. And we didn't like rehearse. We just played dub trio songs with me spitting modest Yahoo lyrics over them. Oh wow! It was, it was epic. It was like an epic show, and they they ended up becoming my band. So at that point, was like live and subs two was like for me it was like okay, the sound has changed, you know, co- quite a bit, and I want to showcase that. And, um, so it was kind of cool to go back, you know, with the with that you know in in a newer sp- in a different space than the first time you know yeah did you utilize those guys on the on spark seeker uh or no or just no, at that just, moment oh. actually yes the guitar player david holmes wrote the guitar line for sunshine like really the biggest song yeah yeah wow so yeah so yeah actually david david was involved in the writing of that song 
maybe one or two other ones, but not as much Stu on that one. Stu produced the Akeda album. So the Akeda album was like me and Stu and Dave, Joe a little bit, but a lot of just me and Stu, you know? Okay. Okay. The uh, Spark Seeker record was produced by Kojak, who's from like the Dr. Luke camp. Mm -hmm. And that was made in California. And it was, uh, it was a awesome a one-on-one experience very very different like the opposite extreme from working with david you know kojak is like an artist he was a brazil he was a rapper in a brazilian band and fun guy and like just chill and just like the most relaxed kind of like cool person to work with in the sense of like just enjoying yourself and just having a good time Mm-hmm. Whereas like the work with David is like very focused and you're in this like hole in this basement in, in New York city in the winter, you know, Kojak's like on the mountain and, you know, in Hollywood. And it's just like a whole different, you know, humble, not like in some big place, but just like, just a whole different era of my life. And you can, you know, I think you can feel a drastic difference on those two records. And the spark seeker record is definitely, um, it's like a sense of, 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 joy to that record i think for sure you know yeah and with that record was that the? i think i read that you recorded some of it in tel aviv was it the first time you had recorded it recorded music outside you know actually in israel i had recorded some music in israel before for sure um yeah i mean early in my career one guy just paid me money to go like into his bomb shelter and just record songs like write and record songs and then yeah, he still got them you know <laughs> oh my god that's wild <laughs> he paid me like by the hour like shekels you know what i'm saying and i was just like i was like about to get married i was like all right yeah I'm, i'll fucking do this yeah and every day he would be like he would be i would be like Are we good he'd be like we'll stay another day and they would just like bring food and water <laughs> <laughs> and then you just hang out there. He'd pay you by that hour to write songs <laughs> for like days. Oh my gosh! Um, but uh, but yeah. So me and Kojak worked. You know, um, you know, like East Hollywood. It was like, it was like uh, right by like uh, what's that spot? Um, whatever. I can't fucking remember any of these the names good. of these places where yeah, I yeah. lived in LA, but. So we we worked up there and we had a great time. And in the whole record we made, it was the two of us. You know, it was like uh, his beats and me singing, you know, us working together on harmonies and figuring out cool percussion things that bang, we'd bang around. And um, But essentially it was just like, a, you know, sometimes you make a record and there's like, you know, there's it could be hundreds of people involved. Sometimes you make a record, it's like you and one person. And that mm-hmm. was like... That was pretty much what we had. At the end of it, it was like great. We loved it. It was fun. It's, it felt like edgy in terms of like it felt like it was very current. Um, it felt like it was hip hop and 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 like all these cool things, but with these huge hooks and melodies and um, very pop for me. Probably like the most pop records that I had made up to that point. Oh yeah, even more, even more than one day in in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, kind of danceable and you know he went on he did like he did uh who was the big one that he did was um what's her name oh. what i can't remember artist of the time great artist with like may have had some huge huge songs anyway whatever <laughs> um basically uh at the end we listened to all that and then we we're like all right but this is this is really kind of strays from like the modesty thing like where's you know, we had shofars, we had like rabbis, but there was something about it that felt like it needed like more, something more organic, something more 
Jewish and I was like, let's go like Middle Eastern and let's let's go to Israel. Let's get some money from the label and have a field trip and go like stay on the beach in Tel Aviv and rent a studio and have my homie in Israel hook up like the best, most badass motherfucking musicians in Israel that there are, which there's a lot of badass players. And so that's exactly what we did. We had a studio in Jaffa and we just like every day went to the studio and we would just have cats come through and we would just play the tracks and have them lace the tracks you know percussionists oud players like whatever you know you name it like and then eventually we uh we just took all that blended it into the record and that was that's how we made it oh my gosh yeah wow it was wow, fun wow. one of the funnest trips ever of my life that's amazing and you put that out did you put that on your was that like kind of your first record that you put on your label uh yeah, with that's Funk true. Clark. That, was, that yeah. was after I had been dropped from Epic. Yeah, and then going a- into—I mean, that was another big album for you, though, too. That's crazy to be like. <laughs> Sunshine is like one of my hugest songs, and I own the master. You know, it's like a whole <laughs> different story. You know, probably the best thing whole, that ever happened to you, as far yeah, as that di- goes. Whole different story. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Because also, my publishing—most of my publishing—reverted to me, which I didn't even know was a thing after I got dropped. So like when you sign a deal when you're young and especially at that time, you would sign off away your publishing as well. Yeah. And so um, that's what I did. And then uh, I got dropped and all of a sudden I'm like, got my publishing back and no one even fucking knew that. You know, it was crazy. I didn't get the publishing back for certain songs like one day and stuff, but you know, a lot of it anyway, but uh, Spark Secret, and that was a fun record to make. And Kojak is the homie to, you know, we've always been, he's just a stand up great guy. Good, yeah, good. I was looking up what who it might be. Was it Kesha at the time? Kesha, Kesha. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, that was good. I was like, I need to figure out who this is for. You yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, at that time, Doc Doctor Luke had like taken over radio. I mean, and he he was like every artist was either his producer, it was like Benny Blanco, uh-huh. Kojak, um, or like the artists. All the artists you were hearing on the radio and stuff were were those artists. But Kojak was just dope. We just had a good time, man. He was yeah. cool. He came with me. We did all kinds of shit together. We threw the like opening pitch together at Dodger Stadium. You know, we were in Tel Aviv. No way. We went back and shot the video uh, for Sunshine. You know, we went back and shot it. It was cool. That is cool. That is really cool. And then so from there on forward, I mean, with Acadia and, and Undercurrent, the so, album you put out two years ago, like those were all out on your own label then, right? Including this yeah. new one. Yeah, yeah. Akeda, I did with. I ended up doing it with the original A and R, who uh, who um, did Live at Stubbs. I ended up trying to work with like a lot of the people that originally I had worked with. Sort of later, that one didn't go so well because he like literally just ran off and didn't like account or pay anybody for the entire like seven year term that he had the record. Oh my so, gosh! Yeah, but that being said, it's my favorite album that I made. Like hands down i think you know really um, and, yeah. would you, and why, why would you say that i'm just curious well i guess at that point i was going through a lot like i was going through i think i was starting to go through my divorce and i was going through um i was touring like a lot a lot a lot because i found myself in this spot where i was just like workaholic like didn't want to turn down any shows or tours and not happy i guess at home to some extent and mm. Um, also like just wanting to work on the craft. Like I just wanted to make the music better and just keep getting better. 
And I kind of like really kind of drove myself down a, a hole with that um, to some extent. And then um, like kind of breaking out of the religion, you know, too, there was like this crazy freedom and like long stints of that time, I was sober and I was like doing yoga and eating macrobiotic and just like becoming a channel, you know, and I would have these kind of ups and downs during that period. But so as an artist, it was like, just like so raw life was very very raw and just coming at me and i felt i was able to channel to my best ability like all of that into that album and those songs and and i was doing it with like my best friend like who was this this guy Stu, who the bass player for dub trio who who during all that time on the road and being away from kids and just feeling isolated in in so many different situations he kind of became like my best friend and someone that I felt like was watching and, and, and paying attention and cared. He's a triple cancer, you know? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, um, and like one of the most badass players and, and just beings that I know. And, um, and so I made that whole album basically just me and him together. So, you know, we had, we had the other guys involved and they were writing and they were around at sessions and, even Dave came and stayed with me, you know, at some point we all wrote together in like the back house on like in like Hancock Park in the house that I was living in with the family. Um, it was just like an intense, a really intense period of time, you know, the, the, the time period when like right before it became religious, when I was trying to make the decision of like, is this the truth? You know, like, cause everything else in my life up until now is like, you do stuff, but, you don't give yourself over really like a hundred percent to yeah. anything like beyond even your own logic, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that is kind of a dangerous thing to do. That's when you get into like fundamentalism and all kinds of like crazy shit is like you allow the idea of the thing to somehow take over beyond your own like reasoning. And that's somehow considered to be like, holy. Right. Yeah. So it's this like process of like completely like losing yourself um and um why were we why were we talking about that sorry I, I lost oh no, no we we're just talking about uh akeda and like that mm -hmm. moment or yeah how that oh yeah yeah this album so so that decision to be religious wasn't just like oh let me put on the hat or have a beard or even move to crown heights or study tour it was like no i'm taking all this on it's the only way very, very hard to make those kind of decisions in your life that are like that drastic. And Akeda was the same thing on the reverse. It was like Abraham going up to the mountain, you know, with Isaac. And now this was like the sacrifice and then the walk back down the mountain, you know. And for me, that was like another massive moment for me where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm t reclaiming my face <laughs> yeah because that's when you shaved right and yeah everything. exactly it was like uh, it was like very literal even it was yeah. like you know it was like very much just like i'm getting rid of everything extra right like i said i went like macrobiotic like no sugar no caffeine no nicotine no weed no alcohol no all of the things but not in a way where I had done it before, like in yeshiva or rehab or different ways at different times in a way where i was just like stepping into the light you know, and, and actually feeling it by chewing fucking rice, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't need all this religion and like all these things. Like I can sit here in a room, like my baby, 
on the rug playing and eat a bowl of rice and chew this motherfucker 30 times, you know, per. Oh yeah. For and just swallow get, or whatever. And, and, and just be like in a, in a super zone, you know, and, and uh, clear ideas and all that. And a lot of that happened because I ended up getting like assist on my local court from like the intensive touring, like pushing, uh-huh. pushing, pushing every night, you know, 12 nights in a row, night off, 14 in a row, night off, 18 in a row, night off. That's how my tours looked. Oh my you know, God. Like, like there would be like six nights off on a like three month tour, four month tour. Yeah. You know? That's wild. And yeah. I always when I started playing that. on Shabbos, so I was just like, fuck it. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna run with this and just play as much as I can. And, oh, is that uh, when you that on that around that time is when you decided to do that? Because I think, yeah, I was reading something that where you before it was like you played only one shows because of like it was like in Alaska, right? And it was like te- a tech it was oh, technically yeah, yeah, not yeah, night yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, prior to that. That was the one Shabbos shoot, right, right. But um yeah, man. So that was a cater. That was just a, a just an intense time for me. Um, and then after Akeda, I moved home from LA. You know, my ex wanted to move back to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So we moved back to the East Coast. I bought this like big old haunted house on the Hudson oh, wow. River. Yeah, about, you know, in this town called Nyack, just, you know, by the Tappan Zee Bridge. And um and I just posted up there and um that's when I wrote the Undercurrent album, you know, and Undercurrent is like, Akeda is the story of Abraham, you know, bringing right. Isaac, his son up yeah, onto yeah. the mountain. mountain. Yeah. So if that period of time for me was like mountains, you know, climb was like climbing this fucking mountain, you know, it's like being up on the top of this mountain in terms of like the intensity of everything. And then there's always like the question of so what happens after that moment when, as a person, like when you have this intense kind of, situation yeah so for me it was like undercurrent it was like there's the undercurrent is like the undercurrent of who you are pulls you back somehow into your kind of original self yeah and that was what this period was for me and i literally moved uh, across the river from where i grew up across the street from a lighthouse from a picture that i took in fourth grade you know of a lighthouse you know and so I kind of like moved back and, and I found myself kind of kind of like less concerned with Judaism and being Jewish, less concerned with religion, less concerned with God in the sense that like, I feel like God has had like, like enough of me already. Like he, he wants a break from me. I want to, we, we need a break from each other a little bit. Like the whole idea that every day and all these things are all concerned with like, with God, like, I like kind of let let go of that. So what do I, what are the things I like? I like watching football. Why? Because my dad watched football on Sundays, I like fucking bagels and locks. I like uh, my motorcycle. I like, you know, my kids. I like, uh, you know, playing the drums. I'm going to set up the drums, like kind of coming back to this Matthew Miller of who I was before this whole entire Matasiago thing. And I think that's kind of what that album was for me. And then, it kind of ended it for me in a pretty dark place because I became like addicted to drugs that I had never, you know, messed with before. And I started falling apart uh, and started falling apart on tour, um, you know, getting through the shows and stuff, but just in a very, very kind of like dark place. Yeah. And um, I've, I've, I mean, I was thinking like a lot when you're talking about, you know, giving everything over because I, I've, been sober for a couple of years now and you know doing i go through i've been in aa and 
and you the same thing like you have to give everything over to this higher power right like you, you just you take this from me type deal like it, it's just it's an interesting concept i was mm-hmm. kind of thinking about that when you were talking earlier many times in many different ways yeah yeah I mean, becoming religious is like for sure that and, and being living it living in a religious life and then you know all uh, you can do that in so many ways for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for me at that point, it kind of is funny because the undercurrent for me was like after letting go of like all these rules and feeling like really strong and being on top of the mountain and all of that, and even being sober and all of that, mm-hmm. you know, um, was like the, there was this pull that like brought me back as I like did. And once I did, I kind of had like already let go of all these rules. So I was kind of like, okay, I'm in, I'm in the freedom zone right now. I'm divorced. Right. And um, there's no one like watching my back or telling me what to do. And uh, I'm a full grown man with money and, you know, and like great like music and all that. I get to go do all this stuff. And and I started to kind of like kind of go to like the lowest place to some extent for me. You know, it wasn't like for me, it was like it was like I'm the type to like I would get fucked up and then I would just go like sit in my in my bus. I wouldn't want to see anybody. I wouldn't want to go anywhere. Just and isolate, just like, yeah. Isolate and just fucking roll in my shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like dark and 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 painful, you know. And um and then I would go out on stage and I would like put all that out there and try to redeem it, you know. And oftentimes would you know would end the shows like in this ecstatic place with the crowd. And it had gone through that process, but sometimes it was just just dark. I just couldn't even open my eyes. I couldn't even look at the crowd. You know, I just felt so like toxic. Yeah. And, and was I, that after you had put out, you had released Undercurrent at that time, and it was kind of the next step? In... Not, yeah, it was around that time. Uh, oh man. And then and, um, Sorry, you know, ahead. then I ended up meeting my wife. You know, and I met this like young woman from Miami in a random way. And we just stayed like in touch on the phone and I would call her and she would call me and we would talk. And, um, and like, she was basically just like, I was like, well, she just moved in. And then we just like, that was it. We've been together for seven years. We have two, yeah. We have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, SD River and Judah Mack, both born at home. home wow. Births. Yeah. And um, she, she like saved my life. You know, she just like fucking, help me do what I needed to do at that time, you know, which was, which was really hard. So, you know, and now it's like a team situation. It's like, you know, something I didn't really understand before. Cause I had been like very much alone for, I think most of my life I'd been kind of doing my thing and, um, you know, got into the situation where, you know, you're really a part of a family, you know, then I got my boys around the teenagers, they're making music. And yeah, I saw that. That's really one of your oldest is going to put an or put an album out last year or was going to. Yeah. He put out an album. He put out a few songs and my, his younger brother, Sean's putting out music about to start putting out music and coming out on tour with me. That's kind of and, so cool. Uh, yeah, it's kind of becoming like a rite of passage. Like when you turn 17, you drop out of school and go on tour with dad, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you have to have your first song out. You know, he's some younger brother said he's like, well, maybe did it. I'm fucking doing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Uh, so, yeah, it's been it's been quite a road. So that Modest Yahoo album after Undercurrent uh-huh. was I've never done this before, like walk through the albums with someone like one by one. It's cool. I appreciate um, you doing this, man. This is so cool. Like, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate it. 
so that Modest Yahoo album is like a sort of a joyful album again. It's like I'm with my wife. I'm pretty much sober uh, to some extent, you know, what you call California sober. I was going to say, you're California yeah. sober, it sounds like. <laughs> or, or at, that, at that point, at least. And, um, and uh, I've got my first baby. Um, my wife loved this song that I had put out uh, called Carry Me and another one called Unraveling. I had done two tracks, like in between albums. You know, I did mm-hmm. like Love Born and Shade from the Sun. I released some music myself. I ended up managing myself like when I was like sober, sober. I like started managing myself and <laughs> releasing music and tracks <laughs> and singles. And then um, basically, um, so yeah, so I was living in Nyack. I'm living on the river, you know, and uh, I have my wife and and a, and a babe, new baby, and you know, just trying to during. I think going it was COVID. And yeah, I was gonna say she, I think COVID was going on yeah, like a prior, and, probably when you were writing that album. Exactly. In the writing leading up to it, and then my baby was born March twentieth, two thousand twenty. No way. Okay. Yeah. Just because you said that, my first son, the whose first concert was you. Was his birthday is March twentieth, two thousand eight? No fucking way! I swear that's to God, that's so dope. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, um, my, oh, sorry, I, I fell off track, but no, my wife says, uh, "I love these tracks you did." Like, who produced these tracks? And I'm like, "There's this this like duo from Columbia that lives in Brooklyn called Salt Cathedral." She's like, "Why don't you reach out to them? See if they'll come to the house during COVID." You know, and, and other people that I had worked with before were going to come and they couldn't come. They wouldn't come. So I reached out and they were like, yeah. And they came to the crib and we made that album at the crib like during COVID. I think it was like summertime. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and you can feel it. That's like a joyful album and just just like kind of in a kind of complete place, you know, to some extent, you know, kind of like. Yeah. yeah. And I love like I love how the album ends, too, with like it kind of with when the smoke clears it's just kind of like this yeah i don't know it's the, the that's towards the end of that. i don't think that's maybe not yeah, yeah. no i like that yeah, yeah i love i love how i think rain dance awesome, but like rain dance just, yeah. yeah how it just kind of end it's yeah i, yeah. I think that's such I, a, a great record i have to dive back into it like there's usually a period of time where i'll like make a record i'll listen to it a little bit even after it comes out i might just to be able to play it and then at some point i stopped listening to it and like that I, that was a good reminder that rain dance is probably one of my favorite tracks on that album for sure that's a great song and then going into this this ep you have coming out um you know next month begin very beginning of next month so in a few weeks from now um yep. when do you start working on this kind of tell me about the the origin of the ep what you know what it's about and everything about it so during COVID, like no touring and stuff, I sold my house, I sold my cars. I moved to Teaneck, which is where my ex lives. So it was like closer to the kids' schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and I made um, <clears throat> this last group of songs. I started, I think it was like maybe February and it probably went through the summer. Um, okay. I don't think I was touring much. And I worked with this for the first time with this uh, group called Song... Um, song camp and basically it's like they have a network of like producers beat makers writers hook writers rappers what engineers whatever across the country new york la especially 
And um, you basically like make a video, send in songs. You're like, this is this is the kind of music I'm trying to make. These are the artists I'm listening to. These are the kind of drums I want. This is what the album is about. This is the concept. They send it out to like their whole network. And then whoever's like interested or who they think will match up well, they match you up with. And wow. you just write some together. Yeah. And sometimes it might be like you and another person on Zoom. And sometimes it was like seven dudes at the crib. Like, <laughs> making music and um <laughs> you know and everyone contributing and everyone you know so uh it was a super cool experience for me because it was the first time you know i've done songs like i have a song live like a warrior where someone else wrote it you know and sent it to me mm-hmm. and so i have a couple songs like that you know um but this is like the first time where i was working with not just the musicians or producers or people who do the stuff that i don't do but people who do what i do do and us kind of like just bawling, like back and forth, like throwing lines out, like working off each other. And it's kind of cool. I think you feel it on the album. I think you can feel this collaborative thing. And I think you'll feel like the flow. And uh, even for me, it's like my flow. It's modest, but you'll feel you'll feel there's like different moments in it where it's ch- kind of changes up in a different way. The music is based on the music that I was like really heavy listening to at the time, which was basically Afropop. Uh, a few a few artists in particular and um basically i was trying to kind of get that vibe with the modest thing you know with what i do you know yeah i think it's such a it's an incredible ep like i said my early on love supplier is my favorite song on it but i think the whole thing's awesome i love the video you post on your instagram of you uh doing fireproof um you're, you're collaborating with someone and you've got you know, it's you're he's doing the backups and you're kind of going back and forth and he's got you got that oh, cool. yeah, that trigger thing and that he's I don't know the name mm-hmm. of it, but you guys are just throwing You're talking down. about Ami. I know who you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that's a, such a rad video. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, yeah, I just cooked like it wasn't just Song Camp, actually. <clears throat> There's a lot of producers I worked with that weren't in Song Camp, like Ami that just I made connections with. I let my managers know that i was trying to work with a lot of different people and and i ended up working with a bunch of different people so it's really cool i think i made like about 38 songs that i stand behind like every single one of them wow i'm not the type i'm not the type of artist to make like a bunch of songs and like throw them away i'm kind of like it happens from time to time but like i made 38 songs i think so these are like the first five that i guess that we felt would would do well and like connect with people but there'll be like a steady stream of music that I'm going to be doing like sort of like the opposite of that go away idea mm-hmm. and just, just keep releasing music, you know, um, as, as much as I can. I love that, man. And I love the yeah. five songs that you have coming out and yeah. I'm excited and a, to hear. It's a different mentality in terms of making music too, you know, the other mentality of like, okay, there's a time for touring. There's a time for living. There's a time for writing. There's a time for recording. Um, and kind of, you have to go through this whole process in order to get this, the right stuff. And, and then, you know, the the amount of time to make it and the amount of decisions, it's just like, it's just like, um, you know, if you're thinking that way, then you're actually thinking like you're limited to the amount of creativity that you have. Right. But if you actually like, don't just like try to do it or change what you do, but you actually change the mentality and you're like, I'm a fountain. I can, I can just, I can just create, create, create if I have constantly like the right people around me, you know, and changing that up or working with the people that you really connect with and um 
that collaborative aspect is kind of seems like central to what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you have, you're doing the tour coming up, you know, right around the release day, start at the end of this month and you have a pretty yep. big tour ahead. That's really awesome as well. Yep. Yep. We, we booked a big tour. We have uh, a lot of like the major cities on it that we've been touring the last couple of years, but we have got left out like a lot of the major cities. So we're going to be uh, kind of everywhere in the next uh, couple months exciting and i really appreciate your time thank you so much uh for doing this and walking through all your 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 work for the past you know two decades plus i mean this has been such a cool fun conversation and again i really really appreciate it absolutely brother yeah i have one more quick question for you and Mm -hmm. i want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists uh yeah i think the most the, the thing that's the most important is like building your craft and your inspiration you know, and I think a lot of artists right now focus on how to get more followers and how to be, you know, crush social media or make moves on social media, which all of that is like super important because that's the industry that we live in. And it's kind of, <clears throat> it's kind of fucking awesome. <clears throat> you know, I think like hired publicists for years and years to get on late night shows and whatever. And sometimes you do, sometimes you don't and things happen. But I think the greatest thing that ever happened to me in terms of like marketing publicity is to walk into a coffee shop on a morning that I was having like a really tough day and some kid is playing my song one day and I just start singing with him. Someone films it, goes viral. Biggest moment, you know, I have people to this day coming to my shows, like that's the video that I saw. That's how I know you're not king without a crown, not one day. Like, so, um, you know, that's the world we live in and like miracles can happen. Like crazy things can happen at the touch of a button. You can make it an inspired video or something, you know, unique and it can, it can, it can ripple and it can be like awesome. And I think a lot of artists are focused on how they can, cause I have kids, I have teenagers doing this right now. So they're like, you know, focused on how they do that. And for me, it was like a whole different situation of like, like deeply listening to music and feeling inspired by it and like letting it come into me and then like figuring out how do I put it back out? And then like developing the craft and then like performing at like open mic nights and in front of people, you know, and um, you're not just in my bedroom, like, you know, jumping around in front of like, you know, the camera or like, you know, playing guitar, like, like really like actually like on the corner, on the block, like in front of like fat beats on 8th Street, like, like beatboxing for people and like, like feeling how that works, like how how to like change time and, and match people's flows and bring melody in. And like, you know, and it was fun for me. It wasn't just like sitting in, in a room and like learning a program, you know, it was like, it was actually interactive. So my biggest, like, I guess what I would say to like, uh, you know, aspiring artists is to try to like find the artist in you, find the artistry and really dig into that. And then you'll make a video and it'll fucking fly, you know? You don't have to make like 10,000, you'll make 10,000 videos trying to do something, you know, a trend or something you saw or even something real to you. But if you spent at those 10,000 hours working on your craft and just fucking doing all, whatever you, you know, you know, explore, what do artists do if, if you don't know? You know what I mean? You know, like, I don't know. That's what I would say.